the masters at negotiation are the people that can walk into a deal and quickly assess the personality type that they're dealing with and give them something in return. That's what everyone's looking for. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Now, a few months back at the end of TMBA 405, we had an added extra tagged on to the end of the episode, which was way more popular than we thought it was going to be. That was simply Ian talking me through the anatomy of a failed car deal that he was involved into. And and we're going to link up to this so those of you that haven't listened to it can go hear it. And the response was incredible, Ian. Were you surprised by how many emails and people reaching out to us directly that we got from, from that little vignette? Yeah, I guess what I didn't realize and why I'm so excited about today's show is, you know, I just thought that the process really related to what we do in business, Dan. I mean, it's just cutting a deal. It's the art of a deal. It's figuring out ways to connect with people. And so, you know, that's stuff that I do every day in business. And then that's also things that I do when I'm trying to buy cars. I think a lot of people listen to that episode. And although they're doing deals every day in their business, they were astonished, I think, at the similarities, but also in the differences when you're doing a deal like I did with the car. Maybe it's that when we heard your story, you had like found the essence of the deal. It like distilled it in a simple way because in business, it can be so complex. So when you hear how you're negotiating terms, how you're trying to get a lower price, what information you're revealing when, these are all things we do in our business every single day, but they're messy. So when you hear about like a transactional deal like you were involved in, all of a sudden you're like, man, I could really use that, you know? And so what listeners started writing to us and they were saying like, we want to hear more of this deal hound approach. We want to hear how you're doing this and how we can learn from it essentially. And so basically more was what I was hearing. So today we have more and someone very special on the show, your mentor in this process and someone who's taught you so much about it. Yes, I'm really excited about this. He's taught me a lot. I was amateur until I came across this guy. I thought you were good pre-Corey. I know. It's it's amazing. <laughs> and then you meet a guy like this, you're like, whoa, another level. His name's Corey Ruth. Him and his wife, Lisa, live in Austin. And I met him through car racing. And over the past couple of years, he has greatly influenced the deals that I have done. And he's probably saved me thousands and thousands of dollars in headaches chasing bad deals. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned, Ian, is that not only is Corey like super passionate about cutting deals for himself, but he loves to share his process with others freely. Yeah, and he just has that abundance mindset. And I think that that's probably why we ended up connecting over more than just these deals, because he's just so open about his process and so willing to share with people and have other people be successful in the same way. And the other thing that I've really connected on with Corey and part of the reason why we're buddies is because he also sees creating this kind of income as the best way to personal financial freedom. I want to be able to wake up tomorrow and say I'm going to Greece on Friday. We literally just did that yesterday. We booked a trip to Greece to do a sailing trip in Greece and Italy and Spain. And we were able to just do that on a whim. That's what I want to share with people is how to take control of your life through creating extra income sources. 
when you have the flexibility to do that. Keep your full-time job. Experiment with buying and selling anything that you understand and that you're good at. I don't care what it is. I know a woman that makes all her extra money buying and selling chairs. Chairs. I would have never believed it. Yep. I know somebody that does it with just car headrests. Oh, car headrests, a huge business. Electronics, computers. Yeah, and they sell them on eBay. Everybody knows has knowledge about something that's valuable. Beanie babies, I don't care what it is. The internet is the wild, wild west. You can buy and sell anything. So if you pursue that, it's so much easier concept for me than the idea of I'm going to accumulate wealth over the next 45 years until I reach some magic number at which I can finally retire and do what I want to do while I'm out of my prime and old, too old to even enjoy it. Whoever came up with that strategy was a business owner, not an employee. Let me buy your prime of your life, and then you can have it back when you can't utilize it. And then you can leave your money to your children. No, thank you. And honestly, you know, Corey, buying and selling cars, you've got titles, you've got taxes. There's a lot of reasons why there are barriers to entry and why, you know, it's difficult to do. And honestly, there's a lot of things that you can sell that are probably more profitable, you know, maybe electronics or something like that. Electronics and antiques and even dirt bikes. Heavy equipment a lot of times has no titles. Airplanes, believe it or not, have no formal dealer requirements. And the only thing that has these barriers to entry, like cars, it's because at some point some powerful lobby created rules to prevent people like us from doing that. Like you can only legally buy and sell four cars a year if you're doing it the conventional way. And so you have to have surrogates. You have to have a family of five or six people to do it legally. And the dealerships created those barriers so that they wouldn't have competition. And what I like about your method and how you live your life is that you really can buy and sell anything. But what you do need to do is you need to be creative. You need to understand people. You need to relate to people. And you need to be hungry. And you also need to be willing to be uncomfortable. And I think that those are all things that you excel at. So Ian, today you and Corey are going to talk us through this approach to making deals. So in your opinion, like why is this special? Because honestly, when people say like making deals or whatever, it just sort of blends into me. It just feels like, okay, I'm making sales, making deals. Like what's different about why are you specifically interested in this approach? I'm interested in Corey's approach because Corey is the kind of guy that can wake up and decide how much money he wants to make every day. That takes a special kind of person and it takes a special kind of skill set. He has a bunch of ground rules that he takes to these deals and that he makes sure for the most part that he sticks to because yeah, it's like anything. It's like if you don't follow the process, if you don't follow the system, then your outcomes can vary. He doesn't really want his outcomes to vary. He wants to have very consistent outcomes, hopefully profitable ones. And you're saying some of these things that can even be, it like doesn't matter on your level of experience. These can be used out of the gate for people that aren't experienced cutting deals, cutting profitable deals. Yeah. I think that that to me is super interesting because you can practice with so little money. You can practice when the stakes are so low, buying things online, buying things in person off some of these sites that we talk about. So let's turn it over to Corey and hear how he's turned a hobby into a regular income. My buying and selling started by accident because I was a car enthusiast. So I would pursue deals for things that I wanted. And just like you, I would just try to get the best deal possible. I've always been fascinated by what I like to call the art of the deal. 
So I would always try to see what someone's bottom dollar was, regardless of what the value of the machine was that I was trying to pursue. It actually became a thing for me when I became unemployed unexpectedly. So I was working as a corporate pilot, which I still do today, but I'd just done a trade deal for a Rolls Royce, and it was a 1976 Rolls Royce Silver Shadow. Nothing particularly compelling about that vehicle for me. It was kind of one of the first ones I bought more opportunistically than anything. And it was because it was on Craigslist and I was just surfing Craigslist. And I think I was actually searching for trades because I had just purchased a Toyota 4Runner for $1,700. And I found this Silver Shadow. And when I realized that they were interested in trades, I called the person and I spoke to her. And she was looking for an SUV. She was already asking below retail for the Rolls Royce. I think she was asking $8,000. So I presented the 4Runner as a possible trade opportunity. I went to Houston to go see this Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce was a driver's good condition. I brought a trailer and I brought the 4Runner. I also brought a pocket full of cash, anticipating that I would have to add at least three or $4,000 on top of the 4Runner to make it a fair trade. And we got to know each other. We built a rapport. She liked the 4Runner. And she was really just trying to find a way to haul her dogs to the park and back. And the 4Runner was perfect for that. So I told her I love the Rolls Royce. I'd love to have it. What's the trade look like to you? And I just put the ball in her court. And she said, I want to trade even. Trade even. She's asking $8,000 for a Rolls Royce and you have $1,700 in this little SUV, this little Toyota SUV. And she says, I want to do an even trade. Yeah. And I was taken aback by that. But, you know, me being the deal monger that I am, I just happily accepted and thanked her profusely. And we did the swap. And I brought that Rolls Royce home with intention of just selling it because it was just a fun toy. I just I drove it around for a while while I had it up for sale on Craigslist. And I had it up for sale for I think I was asking fifteen or fourteen five for it. And I sold it for twelve thousand dollars. In the same month I also did a Maserati deal that was real similar. It was a, like a really low cost of entry point where I sold it for good money. And I had another deal, I don't remember what it was, but there was three car deals within thirty days. And those all happened in the same month that I was laid off. I cleared $14,000 that month just with buying and selling cars. And at the time, I was a new pilot. I was making $3,500 a month. And I got laid off from that flying job. I was 20-something, 24 years old. Scared the hell out of me. I was in a new city. I had bills that exceeded or at least matched my earning potential at the time. So considering that I'd made $14,000 that month when I typically make three or four, it was clear that I was on the right track and that I needed to pursue more buying and selling. And now I had a small kitty to buy and sell from. So I began actually pursuing deals intentionally for the first time ever, where I started surfing for just anything below retail. I would literally at first just look at Craigslist and find a car and then look it up on NADA because I didn't know what it was really worth because you don't know it first. And NADA, for those that don't know, it's just basically what they call Blue Book. It's a third party that basically says, this is the value of the car. And there's a lot of people that agree and disagree with that, depending on if you're buying or selling. But it's a way to kind of benchmark the price of a vehicle. Now, I want to go back a little bit to this Rolls-Royce deal. And I think people hear this and they're like, wait a second, you showed up with a $1,700 SUV. This lady had what she thought was a Rolls-Royce that was worth 8000 turned out to be worth 12000 when you sold it, and she wanted to do an even trade. I think people are probably really confused how you got that done. How did you con her into trading you for this vehicle? 
One of the things that you started to explain, and that's really important during this process, is rapport. You said you built a rapport with her. So can you explain a little bit about how that process takes place in these deals? I realized early on that I've never done a favor for someone I didn't really like. You typically do nice things for people that you want to help because you like them as a person or you love them or their family or what have you. In the context of the deal, if the person doesn't enjoy your company, then they're going to be in a hurry to get rid of you. They're going to want to get you off their property. They're going to want to end the conversation. They're going to want to stop the negotiation. And they're likely not to give you their bottom dollar. Whenever I approach a deal, most people have already considered what their bottom dollar is. That's the only thing you have to consider as a seller. It's like, what am I willing to take? based on the circumstances that you're in specifically at that time. So you need to pay the mortgage. You owe your grandpa $2,500 that he's been bugging you about. There's no end to the reasons why people sell things. So it's your job as the buyer, you know, first to build the rapport, but then to determine what their motivating factors are for selling. And in the case of this woman with the Rolls Royce, her motivation was not money. She lived on a nice property. She was a business owner. She was living below her means. This was just a fun car. It was an extra car, and it no longer served her. She didn't care about it anymore. You could have made a case that the Forerunner was probably a $5,000 machine at the time, maybe $5,500 in retail numbers. So in her mind, she was throwing me a $1,500 bone because she had no idea what I actually paid for it, nor did she care. We built a rapport because we were birds of a feather. We were both business owners, entrepreneur personalities. We had a lot to talk about. So she wanted to help me. I was young, I was full of life and exciting, and that rubbed off on her, and she thought it was great fun, and she wanted me to have the Rolls Royce, and she wanted me to go drive around downtown Austin with all my friends and enjoy it like she did, you know, 10 years ago. So there's a lot of that going on, and we've all done it as sellers, whether it's a friend or somebody that we just connected with whenever they arrived. I've done it many times. One of the ways I picked up on this concept is that I once didn't sell a BMW to someone because I didn't like their approach. It was a husband and wife team. It was a 1996 BMW E36 328iS. Really nice car, real clean. I was selling it for below retail. I was just trying to unload it. I had driven it quite a while and I'd gotten my money out of it. So I wasn't really trying to make any money on it. I was selling it for 7,000. And they showed up and immediately began to pick the car apart. And this is a car that I'd actually driven for three or four years that I actually liked. So immediately they rubbed me the wrong way because they're nitpicking the car like you would do with a dealer who doesn't have an emotional attachment to the car. This was actually my approach when I first started getting into this like 10 years ago because I knew a fair amount about cars. So I would show up and I would say like, oh, it needs a new radiator, needs new tires. Oh, you see these shocks back here. It needs this. It needs that. And it works sometimes, especially with guys that didn't really understand how to maintain their car. They thought, wow, this guy really knows a lot about cars. He's finding all these problems that I didn't know I had. If he doesn't buy it, you know, I'm going to have to disclose these problems to somebody else. But what can end up happening, and eventually the reason why I stopped using this technique as well, is because it turns a lot of people off. They're like, this is my car. This is, you know, I've maintained this car to the best of my ability or whatever. You're coming here on my property telling me everything that's wrong with it. You know, take a hike. Yeah, it's too obvious an angle too. I mean, even people expect you to do that when you show up as a buyer, especially if they have any inclination that you might be buying it to resell it. They're already on the on the lookout for that kind of behavior because they don't want to get scammed. Yeah, I've kind of abandoned that that process almost completely. There are still times where you use it, just depending on the personality of the person you're dealing with and all that. 
you know, in the case of that BMW deal, I didn't accept an offer that was more than what I was willing to accept for the car. They offered 6,200. I was going to take 5,500. And because I didn't like them, I told them to take a hike. They made a lot of assumptions and their approach was all wrong for my personality at the time. And I, I didn't want to help them. I wanted them to suffer and go try to buy 10 more cars. Getting back to this lady and building rapport with her, you kind of had this idea, hey, I'm going to cruise around in this car in Austin with my friends. And I think that that's definitely a true story. And that's the story that you shared with her. But the truth is that you're going to cruise around it with your friends in downtown Austin. And then two or three weeks later, you're going to sell that car and you're going to make a profit on it. One of the things that I find really interesting about your approach is number one, you're super charismatic. Number two, you're super genuine. I mean, it is your intention to drive around in that car with your friends at downtown Austin, but it is also your intention to sell that car three weeks later. How do you balance that? The longer I do it, the more I pursue complete authenticity because I'm finding, especially in a town like Austin, where there's so many hippies and so many people that are spiritually driven or values driven people, I think it's really important that you're being sincere and you're being authentic because they pick up on it. The more deals I do, the more honest I am about what my intentions are, the more that it rewards me. I've found that if I can make an exciting case for what I plan to do with something, an example would be the Jeep that we drove on two wheels. I just want to jump in here for one second. The Jeep that Corey is referring to, we bought a $500 Jeep off the internet and we decided that we were going to try and learn how to drive it on two wheels. This is called car skiing. You can see a lot of this being done on YouTube. It's scary. We thought it would be a fun challenge. And so we will post up a link in the show notes of us attempting to drive on two wheels like stuntmen. But for now, let's get back to Corey. The guy was asking $1,000, but he sold it to me for 500 because I was like, we're actually going to use this as a stunt vehicle. It's really fun. Will you help me out with that? And he was excited about it then. He's like, yeah, totally. Let's do it. You know, he just wanted to be a part of something that was new and exciting. Salesmen are always charismatic, but they lack authenticity. And authenticity comes from brutal honesty a lot of the time. So the more you can be honest with yourself and be honest with them, the more success I think you'll have in the long run. There are deals that that may not always cooperate with. There are people that don't want to be a part of you making money off of them. And of course, you're not going to upplay how much money you're going to make off of someone. You know, that's not the objective. But what you're trying to do is figure out what their motivating factors are to sell this vehicle and how you can help them while simultaneously helping yourself. And you're trying to create a mutually beneficial relationship with every deal. It's a give and take. Yeah. I mean, I've been on deals with you before. It's just amazing where you've told people exactly how much money you're going to make off them. <laughs> I mean, we'll roll up to a deal and it'll be $5,000 and you say, Hey man, you know, my intention is to sell this car. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to take it off your hands because you need it gone today for X, Y, Z reason. But here's the deal. There's not enough meat on the bone for me here. You're asking five grand. I can only sell it for six grand. I need to make a profit of at least $3,000 or whatever it is. And they'll say, okay, yeah, sounds good. And that's just amazing, I think, to a lot of people that you can be standing there in their driveway telling them how much you're going to make off them and them being excited about it. Can you run down some of the common scenarios that you come across when people are trying to unload these assets? One of the deals that, that comes to mind was the Class A motorhome, the diesel pusher. You were present for that deal. His situation was that he was a, another motorhead like us. He was a car enthusiast. I'll set this up just a little bit more. I went to go look at a trailer. I went to this guy's house. He had a screaming deal on a trailer. I went and bought the trailer. 
I was sending you photos of it and in the background was a motorhome. And you said, ask that guy how much for the motorhome. Now the motorhome isn't for sale. There's no Craigslist ad on it. There's no for sale sign ad on it. And so most people, they'd say, well, why would I ask that guy if the motorhome's for sale? Of course it's not for sale. But you being the guy that you are, opportunist, (laughs) understanding that for most people, almost everything is for sale. You said, ask him how much for that motorhome. And turns out there was a number that he was willing to part for that motorhome with. He threw a number that was already quite a bit below retail, as you recall. I think he said 16000 or something along those lines. And when we showed up, we saw that the motorhome had a lot of what I'll call financial liabilities. There was leaks, there was mechanical problems, there was all kinds of aesthetic issues that needed attention. And then I asked him to take quite a bit lower than what he originally wanted. But the interesting thing about his personality was, or his situation, the more we got to know him, the more we learned about what his motivations were. And in his case, his father had died recently and left him with enough money that he was able to buy his dream rig. And his dream rig was a stacker trailer, a semi-style truck and trailer combo that was probably a quarter million dollars all in, you know, two hundred dollars to $250,000. And that's sitting right next to his old rig, which I bought his trailer and then, you know, his RV was the one that you were interested in. His original combo was a perfect club racing rig. It's what everybody typically wants that's reasonably priced. But he came into some money and he shared that with us. That he came into some money, bought his dream rig, and now he needed to liquidate these other assets. And it led me to believe that his motivation wasn't financial at all. He didn't want to sell it to someone. He knew everything that was wrong with it. You remember he had a spreadsheet for all the maintenance he had done. He knew every single, he knew that thing like the back of his hand. And he knew everything that it needed. And that's a problem for someone, especially someone that just came into money and they want to sell this to the general public. He didn't even put it on Craigslist because he was concerned about how can I sell this with a clear conscience, knowing all the things that are wrong with it. So the way that we began to set that deal up, once we picked up on that motivation, is we set that deal up as if you sell it to us, you're never going to hear from us again. You're not going to get a phone call about how does this work? How do I fix this? You didn't tell me about this thing being broken. This is an as-is, where-is transaction, and we are going to try to buy this for well under retail and be transparent about that with no financial liability on his part. So that motivated him. As you recall, he wasn't the ultimate decision maker on that either. He, his mother actually had a say in that transaction as well. So he had to go to his mother and convince her that this is what he wanted to do and these are the reasons why. And he ultimately sold it to us for 30% of retail. And you know, I had to put quite a bit of money into it to get anywhere near retail money on that rig, but that was still a big win. That was a big you know, double your money kind of a situation. The masters at negotiation are the people that can walk into a deal and quickly assess the personality type that they're dealing with and give them something in return. That's what everyone's looking for. So there's the guy that comes into a bunch of money. That was kind of this guy. Who are some of the other people that are selling things? It's either extreme in my experience. So the two most common that I see are I have money and I don't care that I'm selling it below retail. A lot of times wealth will create an arrogance where they know what it's worth. They won't even look it up. Like, I know that rig's worth $15,000. Well, how did you figure that out? I just know it. I know it is. And they'll go with that all the way through the transaction. So that's pretty common with wealthy people. I see that a lot. The other extreme is 
poor people or people that are living paycheck to paycheck. An example would be I purchased a Miata just yesterday or the day before from a gentleman that I believe lived paycheck to paycheck. He lived in a small subdivision in way north Austin. It wasn't a poverty-stricken neighborhood by any means, but it was definitely a paycheck-to-paycheck, living-high-in-debt kind of environment. He had a Miata that he was asking $2,500 for, and when I got there, the Miata was in pretty rough shape, and it turned out that when I asked him the story about that Miata, he got that Miata as a gift from someone, and he played with it for a couple years just as a toy car, but it needed everything, and it had all kinds of problems, and he was aware of that, and he said, my wife wants it gone. I just don't have the time to mess with it anymore. And it's kind of the same scenario, but in this context, he needed money. He just came through the holidays, and he was trying to get as much as he could for it. But at the same time, he was a bird-in-hand kind of personality. And I love the bird-in-hand personalities, and and I present it to them as, I have cash right now. You won't have to show it anymore. And this is all profit to you. So whatever I offer him, I know is all free money. And that's how he sees it. So when you have that context, you have to tactfully deliver a lowball offer that doesn't offend this person, but lets them know that you're the person that can help them put money in their pocket right now. Because as you know, it's not uncommon as a seller that you have to show something to get retail. You have to show it eight times, 10 times, 10 appointments, 20 no-shows, undesirable people coming to your house. There's a million reasons why people are willing to do this to close a transaction early for less money. And our goal is to, to exploit that to some regard without taking advantage of the situation. Yeah. You know, these days, like Craigslist especially is just full of these people that'll, you know, over the phone, hey, I'll give you 50% of what you're asking. And, you know, sellers, they know that now and they're kind of annoyed by that. You know, you and I are the guys, though, that can actually show up and offer 50% under what they're asking and get the deal done. Generally speaking, it doesn't happen over the phone. It, it happens in person. In the case of this Miata, I just want to lay this out because this was real recent and I think it's really relevant, you know, the lengths that you go to to get these deals done. The guy, and this is very common, and by the way, I just want to say you own the Miata Craigslist market in Austin for quite a few years, and then I I feel like I took it over, (laughs) and then now I feel like you're coming back onto my turf with this purchase that you made two days ago, and I don't appreciate that. (laughs) You can have it. I'll make you a great deal on it right now. With this Miata, I'll just share a little bit about the details of how it went down. You sent me the listing. It had a couple parts on it that we knew were worth more than the sum of the car. The guy, for whatever reason, would not give you his address. What we know about deals like this is if they are undervalued, or I should say if they're underpriced, way under retail, generally speaking on Craigslist, they will go fast because there's a lot of guys like you and me in Austin that are pursuing these deals. So you have to act fast. Most people never see them. They're on and off within an hour. So there's two components to this. One is you have a safe full of money, so you never have to go to the bank. We call it Miata money. And you know, within five minutes, I can be in my safe, have the money on me. And then within 20 minutes or 30 minutes, wherever it is in Austin, I can be in that location. So this guy has the car for sale, says, okay, I'll meet you tomorrow morning, does not give you an address, which is very common. You knew the location of where this car was. It was in North Austin. So before this guy even answered his phone in the morning, you took an Uber up to North Austin, sat into Starbucks, called this guy until he answered the phone, said, hey, I'm five minutes away. Literally for two hours, I tried to get him to answer the phone or respond to a text and he was asleep. You called me. I Googled his phone number. 
I found out what his address was through some back records. So we, <laughs> we basically triangulated this guy. We figured out what corner he's on. You sat at the nearest Starbucks. And as soon as he answered the phone, you shot over to his house. Yeah. Using Uber because my wife had borrowed my truck. So I had no truck and trailer this particular day. I'm risking $100 in Uber charges for the idea that I can gain the profit from this vehicle by being the first person on the scene. But it's uncomfortable because I'm sitting in a coffee house not knowing if he sold it last night because that happens all the time. And in this context, I offered him a deposit the night before. I said, I would like to see it first because it's already priced below retail. And you generally do that through PayPal or something like that? Yeah, I'll send him 300 bucks in PayPal. And again, it's a risk. But in my experience, I haven't been burned doing that before. It is a risk and I'm aware it's a risk, but it's a risk I'm willing to take. If I throw $300 at somebody, it's likely that I can get it back through either PayPal or through them if they sell the vehicle without my permission. So yeah, it's a risk, but that's the game we play. And the attitude that that we have that you're talking about right now, the fact that I was willing to get up at 7 a.m., commute by Uber to North Austin, an hour commute in traffic to get to the possibility of being the first person to buy this car. It's just indicative of how dedicated to this process that we are. And when I get there, the car is kind of a piece of crap. So I have some real concerns about it making it home for the 45-minute drive. And as it turns out, it didn't make it home. And I didn't, you know, I ended up blowing a tire on the way home, didn't have a spare. Luckily, that happened at the same time that I reached a local Mazda dealership. So I went into the local Mazda dealership, then purchased a used tire, had that installed for $72.92. And now I'm in that car for an extra $125 just to get it home. That's the kind of mentality that gets deals done that reward you big. But it's also what scares off people from attempting to do things like that. They don't have the resources or don't think they have the knowledge or what have you. And that it's kind of a barrier to entry, which is good for me. But the personality that will never succeed at this game is the one that looks at the car deal that I show them and go, they always say the same thing. Well, if it's such a good deal, why are they selling it so cheap? Or if it's still there, it can't be a good deal. Someone would have already bought it. They make up stories in their head about why it can't be right, why it can't be true. And I tell myself the opposite story. Every deal I've ever done, and I don't even know how many deals I've done, but many, 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 many deals over the last 20 years Every single one feels like a once in a lifetime, every one of them. But what you fail to understand is that, or what I failed to understand is that there are 2 million people in this town within an hour and a half striking distance of me. And if just 1% of them are willing to sell their vehicle or their equipment or whatever the hell is for sale that particular day for below retail, then you've got an unlimited amount of opportunities before you if you have the capital and the time and the knowledge to pursue it. If you ship small parcels in your business via FedEx or UPS, I've got an easy, no-brainer way for you to increase the profitability in your business. You need to check out today's sponsor, Refund Retriever. Here's the thing, FedEx and UPS both offer a full refund if they don't deliver your packages to your customers on time. But the reality is, is they're not going to automatically give those refunds to you. 
So it becomes a clerical problem, a headache, and so most of us don't bother following up with them. And that's where Refund Retriever comes in. It's a service that audits your invoices for late deliveries and other billing mistakes that you frankly don't have the time to notice. And here's the best part. You're only going to pay Refund Retriever when they find actual savings that they're making for you. That's right. Refund Retriever liaises directly with FedEx and UPS so you don't have to get involved. It's basically free money. If you're shipping small parcel packages, you got to check out today's sponsor, Refund Retriever. One of the things that you mentioned, which I think is really important in this process is being uncomfortable. Whether it's you know sitting in Starbucks at eight in the morning, whether it's negotiating with somebody in their driveway, basically asking or offering them half as much as they're asking for the vehicle. I mean, these are all uncomfortable situations. Yes. How do you make it not uncomfortable? Because I've never really seen you uncomfortable in these situations. I'm always uncomfortable in those situations. And if you're not uncomfortable in those situations, something's wrong with you as a human. So you're just good at hiding it then? I've done it enough that I know how to swallow the the discomfort. Because one of the things that will crush a deal every time is if people pick up on energy. I'm really big on other people's energy. And if I'm a nervous wreck and I'm scared to deliver this message to someone, if I'm frightened and if I'm a shaky voice or heavy breathing or all the signs of of nervousness, they're going to pick up on that. And it's going to make them nervous as well. And it's going to make them think you're up to something. So it's really, really important in any transaction that that you present yourself in a calm, clean, clear demeanor and that you can get your communication through clearly enough that you don't put them on, on the defensive because they're looking at you the same way you're looking at them. Like when you approach a deal, you're like, I wonder what I'm missing. You always have to ask yourself, how can I lose in this situation? How can they take advantage of me? They're looking at you the same way. They're trying to figure out what is this guy up to and what do I have to be worried about? And it's your job as a buyer to put them at ease. You have to figure out what makes them feel comfortable, topics of conversation that they're comfortable with, figuring out what makes them tick. It's just authentic relating to another human in a way that is mutually beneficial, like we said before. Something that you just touched on there too is what am I missing? What am I not seeing in this deal? One of the things that we do is that we kind of stick to our core competencies in a lot of different situations, meaning like Miatas, Mustangs, Jeeps, starting to be RVs. I personally don't float too far away from what I know. And the reason I don't do that is so I don't get burned. You know, I can't roll up on any car and say, is this a good deal? Is this not a good deal? I can roll up on most cars and say that, but you know, there's certain things that I just won't touch because I just, there's just too much uncertainty for me. I just don't know that particular vehicle or make model, whatever. Right. And People that know me well have heard me say the word no-brainer at least a hundred times a day. That's my favorite approach. People often misunderstand my techniques and think of it as as a gambling addict. I'm not a gambler. I operate in the no-brainer region of the world where I'm buying something for 30 to 50% of what I know is retail. And I determine retail with blue book value, with past auctions, with other asking prices. And I take all that into consideration. If someone's asking, if there's 10 Nissan Maximas of the same year on Craigslist and they're all asking $4,500, you can take 20% off the top of that and say, well, subtract $900. 
this particular vehicle is likely worth $3,600 retail. If I'm trying to buy one, I want to buy it for twelve dollars to $1,800. Because when I get it home and the wheels fall off like the Miata or the transmission blows up or whatever, you can still sell it for what you paid for it as is without fixing it. And that's the idea. You want to be able to operate in that no-brainer range where I know no matter what happens, I can wreck this on the way home and still make a little bit of money. The problem with that mentality is scarcity. The amount of scarcity in deals like this is, is pretty frustrating because it could take me a week or 10 days to find a deal. If I'm looking all day, every day, you know, there are times where I'm spending four or five hours a day on Craigslist. And I may do that for five days, seven days, 10 days before that one nugget pops into the viewfinder. And that's what prevents people from being successful in this. You know, my brother will look at this with my brother's more brilliant than me with mechanicals. He's got as much capital as I do, and he can't pull it off. He just can't make it happen. And part of that is because he's not willing to dedicate the amount of time it takes to stare at Craigslist to find that one needle in a haystack. There's probably one motorcycle deal every couple days. There's probably one equipment deal every couple days. There's probably one airplane deal every couple days. There's probably one boat deal. So if you're willing to expand your, your areas of expertise, you have more opportunities if you have that much capital to work with and you, and you want to pursue that. But it's valid that you stick to the, the things that you know. But what I am saying is that if you're doing the deal right and you're not chasing 20%, you're chasing 100%, then you can eliminate a lot of that. And it's and when you say 100% margin. Yeah, margin. You want to double your money or more. I've brought home Miatas that, that had a whole quarter panel full of rust that I didn't catch. And I wasn't upset when I found it because I bought it for $700. So there's a point at which my inspection stops. If I know what a vehicle's worth, there's a point at which it's so cheap that my inspection stops right then and there. And a lot of times in the middle of a deal, I'll feel them out or throw a lowball number or ask them for their bottom dollar to see how cheap I'm going to buy this thing to see if I need to continue to inspect it for every single thing wrong with it. But most of the time, I'm operating in such a no-brainer range that my inspections take five minutes. It's very unusual for me to spend more than 10 minutes buying a car. And it's unusual for me to spend more than an hour buying an RV. So that's something interesting to talk about. You know, what kind of mechanical aptitude do you feel like you have to have to be in this business? Because you and I both have a high mechanical aptitude. We know a lot about these machines, but you're at the point now where you have mechanics working for you. If people want to get involved in this, if people think that this is a cool way to control their income, you know, how mechanically savvy do they need to be? Or is it just a matter of all I need to do is buy these things for 50% below retail and hopefully not get stuck with a bill at somebody's shop? You can't make money and pay mechanics $100 an hour. If you intend to buy and sell a car and you think you're going to buy that car and take it to Jiffy Lube for all its mechanical needs or a mechanic shop to have things repaired, you will lose every single time. Because at $100 an hour, it only takes 15 hours of labor to eat your margin. And mechanic shops can come up with that very easily for things that you may not even understand what they're billing you for. So the way around that, if, you're not, if you don't have the mechanical aptitude, is you have to put an ad on Craigslist and you are pursuing side work mechanics. So professional mechanics that when they are working for a mechanic shop, they're billing $100 an hour for that mechanic, but the mechanic is only getting $20 to $30 of that hourly rate. 
if you have no knowledge at all, you have to have a right-hand man who does have knowledge, and you can pay someone to be that right-hand man. Now, can you find someone that'll be on call and ready to jump when you need to jump to go buy this deal? Probably not. So in that context, if you're not mechanically savvy, you just need to be able to go buy a vehicle for half price, then you can take it to this mechanic and let him make it right, you know, put it in a position to sell. And, you know, if you get a $15 an hour mechanic to work for you, you can afford to pay them to do all the mechanical work and all the repairs of the uh, aesthetics. You can have them do the detailing work. And then all you have to do is take pictures. So it can be done. The problem is, is most of the people that aren't mechanically savvy at all, they're not students of the value of vehicles. So one of the reasons that we were able to adapt to this so quickly is because we love cars so much that we stare at Craigslist all the time to see what we can afford to buy. When we were poor and we were living paycheck to paycheck and $60,000 in debt drowning, we were still looking at Craigslist trying to see if we could afford a Viper GTS. Totally. Or a Corvette Z06 or a particular BMW motorcycle. There's always something that's so compelling to a car guy that they're looking and pursuing a deal on that thing, even when they don't have the money. And whether we like it or not, intentional or not, that was how I formulated my understanding of how to recognize a good deal. And that's literally what I do. I scroll through Craigslist and my little internal computer in my brain tells me what's, what's worth clicking on and what isn't. And if you don't have that skill, if you don't build that skill, it's going to take a lot of time to find the deal. Not to say there's not other ways to do it, there are. You don't have to buy everything off Craigslist. You know, we beat the bushes at storage lots. You could simply tell your friends, hey, I've got $20,000 burning a hole in my pocket. Tell everybody you know that if they got a good deal on a high-performance vehicle that I'm a buyer for it. You know, find the ones that aren't on the market yet, you know. Avoid the competition and just try to find somebody that just wants an easy transaction that doesn't want people coming to their house from Craigslist. Yeah, again, speaking about uncomfortable, just some of your techniques and tactics you have gone to RV storage lots before and offered the manager that lot a certain percentage if he's able to provide you with phone numbers of people and they end up selling you their RVs. You've put out flyers before. You're even starting to do this with higher valued assets. Houses, you were telling me about a house that half burned down the other day that you're considering. One of the things I want to also talk about here, Corey, is trades. We touched on trades a little bit, but I want to go into it a little bit deeper because until I met you, I was doing no trades. I was just simply buying for under retail as far as I could and then selling. But you really turned me on to this trades thing. I'm still a little bit confused about how it happens or how it works, but you were like the master of the trades as far as I'm concerned. And I've seen you taking some very weird things with trades. So on all your ads, pretty much that I've seen on Craigslist, it says open to trades. And a lot of times that's what ends up happening. So tell me about how you seem to make out with these trade deals. Yes, trades are a whole nother topic. I've come and go from trades through the years. There was a time where I wouldn't even put it in the ad because if you put will accept trades or trade, any of the keywords for trading in WTT, want to trade, any of the keywords into your ad, it's going to generate a lot of interest from a lot of flippers and a lot of scammers and a lot of guys trying to flip from the paperclip to the to the house. I just want to say this for anyone who hasn't heard of it. Corey is referring to Canadian blogger Kyle McDonald. He bartered his way from a single red paperclip to a house back in 2005 in a series of 14 flips over the course of a year. And an important thing to remember with the 
I flipped a paper clip into a house routine is that the majority of the reason that happened is because that person made everyone aware of what his goal was, right? It became a viral video kind of a mentality where everybody wanted to be a part of this guy's success. That's totally different than what you do in a normal trade deal. It's not to say you can't do well in a trade deal, but by opening yourself up to trades, you're opening yourself up to 20 emails a day of people trying to trade you a Harley Davidson that's worth $4,000 for your $10,000 sports car. You just have to wade through that. And it also opens you up to a lot of liability. I'm sure you remember this about a year ago, we were in the parking lot of a gas station with a handful of guns (laughs) and a dirt bike. Oh, right. In the back of my truck, especially in Texas, that's one of the things that always goes down is, hey, will you take my arsenal of guns for, for the dirt bike? Yes. And that happens a lot because people inherit weapons and they have no interest in them. And weapons are very easy to determine the value of. That's an opportunity if you're willing to deal in, in firearms, and it's perfectly legal, as long as it's not an automatic weapon or anything like that that's outlawed by the ATF. That's a consideration, and, and I love to take firearms and trade. I don't even care about firearms. I sell them as quickly as I get them because I don't, I don't shoot them. They're just a means for exchanging value. So when we're talking about these trade deals, I think what's most intimidating about them for me is now I'm having to consider two objects. So you know, I got the BMW. I want to sell it for 5000 I bought it for 25 This guy's coming to me with this Harley. He says it's worth five. I feel like it's only worth 25 You know, how do you take into consideration all these different values and make sure that you come out on top? You have to operate in the same mentality. And what that means is when you take a trade, you're right back where you started with you need to get it for half of retail on the trade value. And that's hard to do because most of the people that are doing the trades, there's probably a thousand people in Austin that buy and sell and trade a lot. And it's the same people. I I see the same text messages, the same numbers come up on my phone in text. I see the same emails come from guys years later. I mean, it's the same guys, right? It's, It's just people like us doing their hustle. But where you do really well in a trade, especially with special interest vehicles. So if you have a I just did a really good trade deal and I've got a Bluebird bus, right? And that Bluebird bus is an RV. It's a class A motorhome. That vehicle was compelling enough to someone that they were willing to trade me a vehicle for half price just to get them closer to the purchase price of my vehicle. They're so compelled to buy my vehicle that they're willing to take a little hit the same way you do at a dealership where you sell it for 50% of its value to a dealer just for the convenience factor. Right. So basically what happened with this deal is you have this really cool vintage RV. Let's just say the value on it is 30000 or that's what you're going to offer for it. This guy, he had a vintage Cadillac and he had some cash. And instead of going to sell the Cadillac and then pulling together extra money, he just said, hey, Corey, will you take this Cadillac and then also I'll give you some cash? Right. Exactly. And in that context, I'm getting a little bit soft as I get older where I, I don't like to beat people up. I don't like to throw lowball numbers anymore. Even like when there's blood in the water, I don't always strike anymore just because there's some karmic value to that for me too. Like I don't want to talk anyone into anything. It's not my job to talk someone into anything. It's my job to be available to them if they want to do something that doesn't make financial sense. That's how I settle it in my head. But in this context, he wanted to do the deal and wanted to trade the Cadillac forever. And I finally just said, man, I've got too many cash offers. I don't really want to take the Cadillac and trade. I don't think I can give you fair money for it. And that sparked him to say, how about if I give you the Cadillac for a fire sale price? 
And I couldn't say yes fast enough. It was a perfect deal. It made absolute total sense to me financially. And he was tickled to death to do this deal because he had already put the Cadillac on eBay. The bidding went up to less than the number he called the fire sale price. And I was honest with him about that. I said, that car is worth quite a bit of money. It's a valuable car. I encourage you to try to get top dollar for it and come back to me and I'll, I'll give you some time to do that if you just send me a deposit. But if you just want the easy button, I'm your easy button. And that's kind of been my pitch in the last couple of years, whether I'm trying to buy a house or a car or an airplane or whatever. I say, look, your aircraft is worth $27,000 as it sits because it needs a lot of work. That's retail money. If you want to sell it without going through the process and you just want the easy button, I'm willing to make you an offer that's substantially less than that to make it worth my time to handle all the things that are wrong with this aircraft. And you'd be surprised how often people are like, yeah, that's great. You know, you started that story saying, you know, I've got multiple cash offers for this bus. People are probably thinking like, well, why wouldn't you just take those cash offers instead of dealing with this Cadillac and the cash and this guy and all this stuff? What's the truth there? The truth is probably you have multiple cash offers. You know, that's a specialty interest vehicle. Those types of vehicles, they take a long time to sell. You're going to have to find somebody that their dad used to have one of these things and they're looking to relive their memories of their childhood. And so they're willing to overpay for it because I just really want one of these things. And it takes a long time to hook a buyer like that because it is a specialty interest vehicle. So in that context, it was a weird deal. This guy is is very like metaphysical, real hippie oriented, spiritual guy in California. And he just caught me in the right mood because I, I really literally had a full price cash buyer for the bus that had gotten a grant. It was a nonprofit. They'd gotten a grant and they wanted to buy the bus. So I, ha- I really had somebody that I felt like would actually complete the transaction. It wasn't just lip service. And that's what the day I told him, I just don't think we can make this work. I don't think I can give you fair money for the Cadillac. I'd rather just do this cash transaction. And his response to that was, was very unusual. And he said, we've been talking about this deal for quite a while. And I hadn't talked to him for weeks. So I thought he just faded out. He's like, we've been talking about this deal for quite a while. So I'm just wondering how you could sell to this other guy with integrity. And it kind of caught me off guard. In my head, I was thinking, I don't owe you anything. You haven't given me a deposit. You haven't even given me a confirmation that you're absolutely a buyer for this thing. You've literally been kicking the tires for three weeks. So I can do whatever I want with integrity. But instead, what I said was, what do you propose? Because I liked him. And it goes back to the rapport. I love the guy. He's, He's amusing. He's smart. He's an entrepreneur. He's an artist. So I was like, what do you propose? make me another offer. And that's when he decided that he was going to fire sell me the Cadillac. The offer he made me was substantially better than a full cash price offer if I'm willing to wait it out. This is not a free lunch. This is a long, slow, painful transaction. This deal started in November. And the first time he's going to actually see the bus in person is in February. This could be a four-month transaction. Beyond that, the bus has some mechanical needs that I would have sold it to the other owner a long time ago, just disclosed what it needs. I would have sold it for less money and just moved on and not had to deal with that. But in the context of this deal and the nature of the amount of money he's spending on this bus, I've taken it upon myself to make the bus perfect. It's not free money by any means. I'm working for it and it's going to be a long, painful transaction to make this happen. And it may not even happen. The scary part is this may go all the way to the end and then fall apart when he sees the bus or he may get cold feet. Anytime you do a transaction over six months, there's so many things that could destroy that deal. It might, but you know, this is something else to talk about. You have leverage because the Cadillac is sitting in your garage right now. 
Yeah, so one of the ways I combated that was I had my truck. My truck happened to be in California with my mechanic for another deal that I was doing. And I contacted the owner of the Cadillac and I said, hey, my truck's already in California. I can buy a car hauler and haul that Cadillac home in order to, to get this transaction closer to completion so we don't have to worry about shipping the Cadillac. So at the very least, I would like to send my mechanic there and inspect the Cadillac to make sure that it meets my criteria. And if you'll allow it, I'd like you to keep the title to the Cadillac and let me bring the Cadillac here. And that way it's already done. And as soon as you can get here to complete the transaction, we'll have all the pieces to the puzzle in place. And because we had such a good rapport, he said, yeah, take it. I'm listening to this. And as a guy that participates in this quite often, like I'm uncomfortable with how many moving parts there are without any contracts or anything like that. It's like, oh gosh, you guys don't have anything written down. Oh, this money's exchanging. This guy's cars in your garage, all this stuff. How do you feel operating in, in those gray areas? Why are you so comfortable with that? I always spin it in my favor. So if he decides not to do this transaction tomorrow, then I've got his deposit. I can negotiate to keep the deposit to, for my troubles. And then it's his problem to come get his Cadillac. I wouldn't allow him to take the bus with no money trading hands or anything like that. So you just always, if you're the deal maker, you have to always make sure that the deal is, is in your favor. If you're dumb enough to do something that's not necessarily in your favor, you better have contracts in place and you better have lawyers on retainer to handle all that. And most people don't have that. A contract doesn't mean anything. I do all my deals with handshakes and try to spin it in my favor. And I try to stay out of the danger zone with what liabilities I have outstanding because I can sign all the contracts in the world. And it's only as good as the paper it's printed on until you pay a lawyer $400 an hour to recuperate that money. And just to be frank, most of the transactions I do are too small to accumulate any $400 an hour lawyer fees because that's going to eat my margin in 10 hours or five hours. You know, sometimes I'm chasing two grand or four grand or, or less, and you can't afford to pay a lawyer when you're chasing small deals like that. Paper means nothing. So you need to have the leverage by you either hold the money, you hold the car or you hold the title something, you know, and you can even finance cars that way. I've financed dozens of cars through the years to people that I felt like were good for it. But when I finance a car, the down payment is usually what I have in the car. So if they make no payments, I break even. And if they make one payment, I make money. And it's likely that they'll give you the car back anyway. So do I have a contract on that? No, I don't have a contract on that either. I have a handshake on that and I, I know where they live. I trust them because they're a good person. And if they decide to screw me out of that deal, then all I've lost is my profit. You just have to make sure you always spin it that way. You, otherwise, you're gambling. I could finance an RV to someone and have $1,000 down and finance that RV and hope that they make all those payments so that I can make money in six months. But that's gambling. That's not what I do. Right. And it's also not in the no-brainer zone, which you talked about before. You know, I think People are probably listening and they're saying, oh, you're making two or $3,000 here or there. But the truth is that the volume of deals that you're doing too is pretty massive. I mean, it's not uncommon for you to make two or $3,000 in the morning and then five or $6,000 in the afternoon. And once you do that kind of volume of deals, you can't afford to lose a couple. And I'm sure that you have lost a couple. Do you have any examples of when you've really gotten burned? I actually don't. And I, I hate to even say it out loud because I'm so superstitious. <laughs> so I'll knock on wood and tell the story. But for vehicles that I've bought with intentions to flip or to make money on, I've lost money on two in 20 years. One of them I don't consider it a loss because it was a old T-Bird that I bought in my 20s. And I bought it for $400 with no title. 
and I drove it for a year. I loaned it out to everybody. Everybody drove it. It was just like a spare car. And I sold it at a garage sale. We were moving from a rental house. I had another house, but my, my girlfriend was moving from a rental house, who's now my wife. And I had the T-Bird parked in the driveway. And I went ahead and just put for sale on it $800. I was like, if I double my money on it, I'll just take it and run. This Hispanic family built a rapport with me. The guy that ended up buying it, he was 100% unconsciously competent. He was the best salesperson slash negotiator I'd ever met. And he didn't know why. But he used all the techniques that are in every book you've ever read. He lowballed the the hell out of it. He offered me like $200 for it. I'm like, no, man, obviously I'm not going to sell it to you for $200. And then that was just his tactic to get me to my bottom dollar. And I told him 500 bucks, take it or leave it, because I liked him. And he proceeded to negotiate with me for, no exaggeration, 35 minutes. And because of his demeanor, he was charismatic and he had the right demeanor. And he was really good at reading my personality. Like when I'd shut down, he could open me back up. He was just great at it. He was trying to put money in my hand. Come on, man, let's just do $200. Let's do 200 bucks, whatever. Come on, man, let's just get this done. And he asked me so many times and amused me so much that I accepted $300 for that car that day. I lost $100 on that car. The only other car I lost money on was a Cummins diesel pickup truck, sight unseen, that was in a storage lot, in a storage yard. It had been towed. I had a buddy tell me about the vehicle, told me it was a good, clean truck, showed me some pictures. And when I did the transaction, I realized that the person I was buying it from was a drug addict and wasn't quite right. And I had some concerns. And at the time, it was a no-brainer because it was, I think I bought it for $1,500 and I expected the value to be around 6000 So it was $300 to the guy to get the title and then $1,200 to the storage lot that had had it for a couple weeks or whatever. This was a long time ago when money was tight. So I go to the storage lot expecting to see this vehicle in the pictures. And unbeknownst to me, the truck had been rolled. (laughs) It got rolled into a ditch and the whole right side was trash. So it appears to be a total truck. For all practical purposes, it is a total truck. But I've still got $1,500 in this truck. Instead of buying the truck, I decided to go try to get my money back. So I didn't pay the storage facility, the $1,200. Instead, I went back to the guy's house and tried to get him to give me my money back, and he disappeared. I think it was five or 600 bucks I gave to him. It wasn't a whole lot, so I was still kind of protecting my, my liability. But I decided to walk on that deal. I did not purchase that truck, even though the engine in the truck was worth $3,000 and it was still running, driving, 4x4 truck. It was still, I could have parted it out for $5,000. I could have made money on it, but I decided that sometimes it's better to be happy than to be right. (laughs) So I actually lost some money there. And the good news is, is that launched the idea that I can't buy and sell with lunch money. That doesn't work. You know, we've all done it, but that's more of a gambling addict kind of move than it is. You know, you need to set aside some money and it doesn't matter how much it is. There's people that make a fair living just flipping with a couple thousand dollars. And they build it up to $10,000 and pay bills with it. And they flip their way back up to 10 and they never get above 10 grand. And they just kind of bounce back and forth. It's a bit of an emotional roller coaster to do it that way. But the more capital you actually can amass, the more that you can make. One thing I noticed with you and I, Corey, is we were talking about this the other day. This is a lot of work, especially for you, because you do a lot more than I do. You make a significant income from it. In terms of the, the amount of work, though, one of the things that you said to me the other day was it doesn't feel like work to you or it isn't work to you. I would be doing this anyways. 
And I think that that's important to recognize, you know, I think people listening to this are probably getting tired saying like, oh my gosh, like you had to go to this drug dealer's house. You had to like negotiate with the storage lot, but this is actually fun for you. Oh, it's so fun. It's a, it's an experiment in people. You know, you get to learn people, you get to, to see how the world lives. You get to see circumstances that, that are entertaining, that are funny stories down the road. You know, for me, I'm going to be tinkering in the driveway no matter what. Whether I'm making money or not, I'm out there tinkering in the driveway. I like money more than I like cars. So it works perfectly for me that, that I can play with something for a week or two and then not be emotionally attached to it and sell it. It's interesting that you say this is a study in people because I believe that now that I've met you. you know. So before I thought it was like, it is the art of the deal. It is trying to negotiate, hey, how cheap can I get this car? How can I drive nice cars for essentially free, which was my game for a long time. But you kind of put a different twist on it when I met you and it was like, oh, wow, these are two people interacting with each other, understanding who each other are and mutually benefiting from the relationship that comes out of that. And cars are just kind of the catalyst for that in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's a really interesting shift that happened for me. I really feel like that shift happened in the last couple of years. And when I was comfortable enough with what I did and had reconciled what I was doing in a way where I felt like I could do it responsibly without taking advantage of situations or people or circumstances, it changed my approach. And after you do this for 10 or 15 years, deals start to fall out of the sky. So people pull into my driveway. So one circumstance where a fellow flipper pulls in the driveway and says, hey, I have this RV. Are you interested in it? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to buy it. Okay. What kind of offer can you make on it? Well, this is the business I'm in. So what I'd like to do is tell you what it's worth retail. And then I'll tell you why I'm not going to pay retail. And then I'll throw an offer at you. He says, okay. So that RV books out at $22,000. I would ask 25, I would accept 20. That being said, it has some mechanical and aesthetic needs that I can handle that you may not be able to handle. So in order for me to feel justified in taking on the liability of this machine, I can offer $10,000 for it. And although no one wants to get a half price offer, it was delivered in such a way and with the rapport and with sincerity and honesty and authenticity, he's like, okay, well, let me talk to my other family members and see if that's something we're willing to do. That transaction actually ended up happening and it took several weeks. I had to kind of revisit it several weeks and just catch him on the right day in the right mood to where he was like, yeah, you know what? We tried to sell it on our own. It wasn't successful. Or we had somebody try to fix a generator and they charged us $600 and the generator's still broken. That kind of thing happens and it and just makes it more obvious to them why my offer was as low as it was. And it starts to sound more and more fair. The more data they collect, it starts to sound more and more fair. And then they take you up on it. And it, was, and it ended up being a fantastic deal. I repaired everything that needed attention. I took a vacation in it with my whole family, went to Colorado and spent a week in the thing and brought it home and cleared like $15,000 off this thing after it was all said and done. And the guy's still a good friend of mine. He loved it. He was so happy with the transaction because it was done on the up and up. It was all transparent. And it's beautiful when you can do that. You can't always do that. It doesn't always work with the personality that you're dealing with. But whenever I can make it happen that way, I love to do that. Just to, this is what your vehicle's worth. If you're willing to, to do the dance to pursue retail, these are the things you're going to experience while trying to get retail for the vehicle. But here's my offer. It's really gratifying to do that. This is like the ultimate lifestyle business for you because you actually enjoy tinkering with these things. You actually enjoy chasing these deals, talking with these people. One of the things that we've talked about in the past, which you've struggled with is 
really like how to turn this into an asset, how to turn this into something that you don't have to be there to operate every day and be a part of. There's two sides to that though. One is I think that you genuinely want to be a part of this on a day-to-day basis. And I have seen you in certain times in your life say like, well, you know, I'm going to be in California for three or four weeks. So it's not really possible for me to be in this business at that time because, you know, I don't have other people that can do what I can do, my skill set and my business. So what are your thoughts on this type of business as an asset that someone like you can walk away from? I've been struggling with that for 15 years and I've finally come to the conclusion that the easiest thing to do, and that doesn't mean it's the most profitable thing to do, but the easiest thing to do with this type of business is to do it on a scale that you can manage yourself with a couple of people helping you on a contract basis. I've got two to three contract mechanics, two or three contract painters, and a couple of cleaning and detail people that I can utilize only when I need them that are business owners that are doing other work when I'm not present. So the benefit of that is I don't have any overhead. So I'm doing it out of the house. I don't have a consistent person to pay whenever I'm not able to give it enough attention because the only person that can buy and sell with any consistency, the kind of deals that I'm looking for is me. Not to say it can't be done well and I can't teach it. I have taught it, but I've never seen anybody do it quite as well as I have. And that leads me to believe that it's just going to make a lot more work for me to try to put somebody in that role. So, And I like that part. I like to buy and I like to sell. Ideally, I, I would just be a buyer. That's my favorite thing to do is to buy. You and me both. That's why we're sitting <laughs> We're sitting in houses with piles of cars and RVs. <laughs> yeah, we're sitting on piles. But I think that that's important. You know, People listening to this show, and myself included in previous businesses, the goal was always like, okay, how can I do the least amount of work, earn the most amount of profit, and have this asset that just keeps growing? And I was able to accomplish that with other businesses. But this business is different because it is a lifestyle business and because you enjoy doing it. And one of the things, you know, as I get older that I start to appreciate is like, hey, we don't need to create systems for everything that we do in our businesses. We don't need to try and offload all the work because this is genuinely how you like to spend your time. Luckily for me, this has always been, for the most part, recently, this has been a situation where I'm just earning extra income. This is the money I use to race cars professionally. I I went pro racing in 2016. And part of this strategy you know, the no overhead strategy. We also have a consulting business. My wife owns a consulting business where we work out of the house. We travel 90% of the time for that consulting business, you know, doing organizational development and things like that. So it's a perfect scenario where everything you do is all profit. And that's kind of how I try to run the, the car business as well. I can leave for six months and come back and not do a single thing and still have valuable assets in the driveway when I get back that I can sell and, and accumulate more wealth with these assets. But It's important to me to not create a system where when I've tried to create a business that runs itself with this kind of buying and selling or dealership model, it's difficult to staff it with good people. So I spend all my time trying to deal with staffing problems. The typical people that work in this industry are they are ex-cons or they have a drug or drinking problem. It's not uncommon at all for that to be your typical mechanic that wants to work for 20 bucks an hour. So you're constantly trying to to weed through the problem children and hire good people. And then when you get a good person hired, they find a great opportunity within six months or a year. So it's very rare that when I get the guy that I'm like, oh, I can build a business around this guy before I can build the business big enough to pay him what he's worth, he's gone. And then I'm back to ground zero trying to train new people and trying to sort that out. So 
I try not to get lost in the complexities of business to do a simple task like buying and selling. I try to keep it as simple as possible. And that's been my focus in 2017. In the beginning of 2017, I was trying to make it repeatable. I was trying to make it something that would operate without me. And all I really did was make a lot of work for myself and spend 40 hours a week dealing with staffing problems and the human element that I really don't enjoy doing. So, you know, we've had that conversation a lot about, well, I just need to get back to basics and do what I know and keep it simple. The other part of this conversation is that I know myself. I know myself well enough to know where I can be successful and where I can't. And I fear institutions. I can't do anything that requires me to show up every single day. I've never been successful at that. I've done it many times throughout my life because I had to, and I can do anything if I have to to pay the bills and to take care of my family. But that's not where I'm happy. And the other thing I'm really bad at is saving money. I've never been the guy that can amass a huge amount of wealth by slow and steady saving. That's not how I operate. And the people that I do know that are good at it, I've also watched them amass all this money with no way to recreate that money because they're doing a nine to five to create that wealth. And the second that they need access to a lot of money, it's gone. And it took them 15 years to put it together. You know, they put together $150,000, $10,000 a year at a time for 15 years or whatever. And when they need that money for whatever reason, medical or travel or they lost their job or what have you, that money's gone and they're not going to be able to put it back for 15 years. So what I've found is that I can amass wealth through assets. So I can buy an asset for half price. I buy a $5,000 asset that's worth 10 or 12 or 15. And that asset will always be worth that for the next five years. So as long as I keep that money in the asset, I have access to it. I can sell it in 30 days if I need to. But more than anything, I can continue to hide my money from myself in these difficult to sell assets. I just keep flipping up the assets and I've accumulated more and more wealth that way. And you can do it with houses, airplanes, cars, motorcycles, anything. The only trick to that then is to keep enough operating capital that you can pay your contractors and all that kind of stuff. But I hide the money from myself in assets and assets are more difficult to spend. And that has served me really well for the last 10 or 15 years. Corey, uh, appreciate you coming on the show, sharing with everybody what you're up to. Hopefully uh, next time we talk, maybe we'll talk about racing. Yeah, I love talking about racing. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Very strong one, boss man. I enjoyed it thoroughly. You know, we used to sign off these apps with go make a cold call because we thought it was uh, sort of a simple way to like do the hard things that it's going to take. After this one, we should say, go make a deal. Yeah. There's no downside to going and trying to make a deal. One thing that's really clear with this process and with Corey is uh, go make a deal, number one. And then number two, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Corey finds himself in the most uncomfortable situations. I've been with him on many of those journeys and he's okay with it. If you want to get ahead in making these deals, if you want to get ahead in business, any of this stuff, you have to be uncomfortable in the gray zone. And the cool part is like being uncomfortable doesn't mean doing bad stuff or being a bad person. It just means there's a little bit of emotional conflict in these situations that you have to bear. And again, the internet can shield us from those things. We sit around and wait for the likes to come in instead of getting on the phone and making something happen or getting in person, better yet. Thanks to you, Bossman, for the great interview. And thanks to Corey for coming by and sharing the method. We're going to post all the links 
and show notes to this one over at tropicalmba.com slash art of the deal. And if you remember back to the beginning of the episode, we talked about TMBA 405, which is where we talked about Ian in an uncomfortable compromise position at the end of that episode. You can now download it on your handset. That's right. The last 300 episodes of the TMBA podcast are now available to iTunes and on your phone. And some of you may have noticed if your setting for the TMBA podcast is to download all episodes that your phone might be trying to download a bunch of our back episodes since we've reset that feed. So my recommendation is you click into this podcast settings and just click download the last four episodes or last few months or whatever. Because if you, again, you've got programmed to download every single TMBA episode, now you're going to get 300. Probably don't want all 300. Maybe you do. You might. You might. You might be going on a long haul flight or a cross country bicycle ride. This one is going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash art of the deal. And we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with another free episode. A deal, hopefully, you cannot deny. See you then. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.